You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. I don't think we've had any guests on more than the guests we have on this week, although we're going to chat and kind of flip the tables a little bit, but let's get started. You all know Jeff Speck from his many books, his many appearances here, and his great work in terms of uh, Walkable City. Jeff, welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast, man. Thank you so much, Chuck. And I think I've only been on your show twice. This might be my third visit, but those visits were so memorable that I'm sure you imagine <laughs> as being uh, more frequent. <laughs> I think this is at least number five, because I think we've done a couple like this. I think we did a web broadcast once we turned into a podcast, and I think we did one at CNU. So I've snuck you in more times than maybe you think we have. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I um, hope I merit it. You do merit it. You do merit it. We're going to talk about confessions of a recovering engineer in a bit. But I will say this. I don't know when Walkable City came out. What what, what year was that that it came out? It was 2012. And I can say that with confidence because I'm now preparing the 10th anniversary reissue with a whole with a bunch of whole new material. And I want to talk to you about that as well. Beautiful. Well, here's here's why I say this. As an author, you know, you don't get a lot of feedback on how well your book is doing. I know this will make a lot of people upset, except through the Amazon like ticker, right? You might get a monthly thing from the publisher. You might get a little bit of feedback here and there, but you know, it's, it's pretty much like out in the ether. And the only thing you really have to gauge it on is how many people comment on it on, on Amazon, how many ratings you have, what your Amazon rank is. And, you know, when you release a new book, like Confessions came out in September, there's all this momentum, right? Like you, you, you get high. And then over time, it starts to fade away. And it was fascinating to me that every time I would see Confessions listed as like the hot new book, the book it recommended along with it was Walkable City. And Walkable City, after a decade, is performing, you know, it still is like the number one, the number two, the number three book in all of its categories. This has been a really impactful book that you've wrote. I just want you to reflect on 10 years of it before we get too far into this. Yeah, I I was hopeful that it would be more than just a book for planners. And it was written, obviously, and published to be a book for generalists. And I think it's, its real strength is that it was intended to communicate to everybody. For that reason, it's going to do better than any profession-oriented book, including my own, like Walkable City Rules, which for many of your listeners is the book they should really be reading to do their work, because that, that is a book that really gives instruction and detail and illustrations and charts and graphs. And I know you have it somewhere you don't need I, to. I'm I turning could, it around looking because it. it's on the shelf right behind me, but I'll, I'll put it in the prime spot up here next to Victor's here. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you put the wrong book back there, but we all endorse Victor. But Walkable City Rules, which now I think is being translated into its fourth or fifth language, Walkable City has been translated into seven languages, but Walkable City Rules has done really badly <laughs> when, I com- not, not as a, when I compare it to Walkable City. And that's disappointing to me, but I have to understand that one of the reasons for Walkable City's success is that it's meant for everyone to read and it's written for everyone to read. And since you really want to show it, I'll grab a copy. Grab it, because uh, it... I'm going to say this and, you know, no insult to Walkable City, which I quote as often as I can, but Walkable City rules is like, yeah, that one right there. This is Hungarian version. Sorry. (laughs) This is a tremendous book. I feel like you and I are both pitched as like, you know, the experts in this field. I read Walkable City rules and I'm like, "This, this is fantastic. I'm learning stuff. It's very practical. I'm not saying the better of the two books, but I think in terms of the target audience, if you're out there trying to figure stuff out, that's the book, right? So Walkable City Rules, which is 101 rules, and each one is a two-page is a two-page spread like this. It says, understand network function, right? Or create pedestrian zones properly, right? So 
everything that I know is in this book. In fact, some things I don't know are in this book because after I wrote them down, I forgot. I forgot them. But Walkable City, I'm just, you know, I'm so grateful for how well Walkable City is done. I am your typical insecure author who periodically checks the Amazon page. So if I'm buying something on Amazon, I'll be like, hmm, I need kitty litter. And oh, how's my book doing? <laughs> and so I'll check. And it's not periodically one or two or three. It's it's periodically basically three to 10. And it wavers in that zone. I checked two days ago and it was number three behind the two books that should be in front of it, which are um, uh, Death and Life and A Pattern Language. So those are the two you know, perennial, incredible books. And then, of course, uh, your book is up there quite high. It's both a pleasure and then a, a burden, a responsibility now, because so many people are reading that book and it is getting out of date. When we wrote Suburban Nation, which still stays pretty well on that list also, Andres made a ruthless edit. He said, I'm going to pull out anything that dates this, anything that makes this now, because we want it to last forever. And I did not do that with Walkable City. And I'm, um, uh, you know, I kind of regret that. But what's great, and I hate to say this because it's going to cause some of your viewers to delay buying the book. But I'm going to see a dip in sales for the next 11 months. But in November, we're coming out with the 10th anniversary edition, for which I'm writing a new forward that'll probably be 50 pages. Uh, Jeanette Sadek Khan is writing an introduction. Fantastic. And, uh, or flip that. She's doing the forward, and I'm writing an introduction. The book will not be rewritten, but this new large introduction will bring it into the, into the present time. And actually, I thought I was going to rewrite it. I thought, you know, rather than adding stuff to it, I could just start from the beginning and bring it up to date, line by line. And I had a lecture in Paris <laughs> in July, lucky me. And I, I had them pay me by giving me a week in Paris in a hotel. And I sat down and, and, and tried to start from the beginning of the book and rewrite the book to bring it up to date. And I realized miserably, it was a horrible time, that... The book is just a base. It's a whole bunch of stories and the stories happened when they happened. And there may or may not be contemporary corollaries or, you know, equivalents to those stories to, to replace them. And, you know, the book, the book was written by basically collecting every possible story and piece of advice I had and putting it into a book. So, so actually it, it was a failure. It was a failed effort to rewrite the book to be now because the stories, which are still valid, happen to be older. So I decided just to create a new front part. Yeah. So that's the plan. I, well, let's let me give this advice then to people who are who are listening to this. You, you can wait. You can wait till November. Well, no. Here, here's the advice that I would give: Go get Walkable City Rules. I think that that is the timeless one, right? Like that's the one that uh, needs no introduction. Go get that one. That's going to actually get you out there working anyway. And to me, Walkable City is the one you share with. It's the one where you you buy Walkable City rules for yourself. You buy 10 copies of, of Walkable City to give your council members and, and, and other people who you want to get a nice introduction to these ideas. Thank you. Well, from, from your mouth to God's ear, um, <laughs> I, I have found that most of the places where I end up working are places where somebody did that. And the book has, the book has, you know, reached into the community, but on the topic of, and I do want to jump to the seaside prize event, but uh, on the topic of must reads, this is what I'm saying to everyone, Chuck, not just to you, the book that people need to read now, absolutely is, <laughs> is, is this book. I took the cover off. It, it is so freaking important and it is such a breakthrough book and such a distillation of common sense ideas that have never before appeared in one place, collectively, clearly, convincingly. What you've accomplished is magisterial and uh, it needs to be on everyone's desk. I don't want to work in a city where they haven't read it and getting that to happen is, is, has become one of my goals. Thank you. That means so much. And I, I know you would say this too, but I stand on the backs of giants. A, a lot of this stuff is, is stuff that I have discerned and pieced together from 
lots and lots of conversations and lots and lots of reading of stuff that that you've done, stuff Andres has done, stuff that you know many people in the CNU and adjacent to the CNU have, have brought to the table. I'm proud of the fact that that I was in a position to put it all together like this. I mean, it, it is uh, like you say. I think a a collection of thoughts that have been brewing around in our sphere for a long time that are now together in kind of one, you know, mostly coherent document that people can go through. So in five minutes, I'm going to start interviewing you about this book and talking about it. What I want your whole audience to know, because it's, it's actually wonderful the way your audience overlaps with the new urbanist audience, but is not entirely the new urbanist audience especially because uh, the event that I'm about to advertise is happening the same month as CNU in Oklahoma City. And I'm not sure how many people are willing to go to both events. I'm going to both events. You're going to both events. But, you know, travel, people aren't traveling that much now, obviously. And also people's budgets are limited. Uh, Here's the story. I was fortunate to be recipient uh, in, in a long line of wonderful people who have received the Seaside Prize, which I'm the 2022 winner and in, on March 4th weekend, I will be receiving a key on a, a, key on a ribbon <laughs> that I love collecting medals. So that's awesome. But one of the benefits or honors of being selected for that prize is that if you want, and I could have said no, if you want, you get to curate a weekend of, of uh, talks. I took that on as a real opportunity to hear from the people that I really wanted to hear from and to create an event that was very thematic and self-supporting and where everything builds on everything else. I have an incredible roster of also, I'm, I'm grateful for the friends I have, people who are willing to show up for free, no one's getting paid. And yet uh, Jeanette Sadek Khan is coming and speaking twice. Chuck Marone is coming and speaking. And, and I've got you uh, and Jeanette in a one-two punch that you may be aware of. Um, I'm, I'm I blown want away. You to bounce off yeah. each other. Yeah. yeah. And I want you to talk first and her second, because you're going to be mostly bad news and she's going to be mostly good. News. Yeah, that sounds perfect. And then I've got Mike McGinn, who runs America Walks, but he was also the mayor of Seattle when they were trying to fight the Alaska Way expansion that you're, you're well aware of. And then Rodney Ellis, who's currently uh, helping to lead the charge in Houston to try to delay, change, stop, just do anything possible to the I-45, 7 billion plus, it'll be more like 10 or 11 when they're done, expansion that I've been fighting also in Houston. But he's a, a firebrand politician who um, really speaks from a position of you know what matters to the people. So he and Mike will be doing a one-two punch about highways in the afternoon. The opening evening, because Seaside wanted all the local officials and anyone who would listen, the civilians, to hear from Jeanette Sadek Khan about what was accomplished in New York and what she's doing with Bloomberg. We've created a dual event with my friend Dar Williams, the very popular folk musician, and Jeanette. And we're calling it From City Streets to Country Roads. And Dar is also a would-be urban planner who's written a book. I think it's called What I Found in a Thousand Towns. So Jeanette and she are going to do a one-two punch on Friday night. Saturday night, in addition, Andre Stuani will be speaking because he'll, he'll be introducing me. And then I'm going to be giving a talk of all, of all new material as well. And then finally, on Sunday, there will be uh, designer-led tours. Andres will be leading a tour of Seaside. I'll be leading a tour of Rosemary Beach, which is the second generation Seaside, which I um, got to manage when I was at DPZ. And then uh, Marianne Corey, town architect, will be leading a tour of Alice Beach, which is is the other great DPZ project. Also watercolor there, another new urbanist project. There's a lot to see. This is literally the, you know, the new urbanist Mecca. This is where it all began. Yeah. It's very easy to pick. It's very easy to pick on seaside and say, oh, and these other places, you know, they're, they're um, uh, expensive resorts. And that indeed is what they have become. It's certainly not how they started. And uh, their success is a testament to how starving people are for, for real urbanism. But the fact is, whatever its status, Seaside initially, and then these other projects subsequently, uh, well, in, uh, Seaside in particular, is what caused people to realize and understand that we could build complete mixed-use walkable communities again after that not happening literally for 50 years in America. And so they're super important models and it's a wonderful place to be in March. You know, this is my pitch directly to your listenership. It's not that expensive to attend. 
Obviously, it's expensive and a little painful to get there and stay there. There are places available at, at Airbnb. You can you know shack up with each other and figure out ways to to make it work. Um, but I hope I hope a lot of your listeners will come. It's going to be an amazing weekend. I want to kind of emphasize that because obviously we want people to go to CNU and OK City, and that's great. I would have come to this thing, whether you extended me a generous invitation or not. I was planning to be there uh, as soon as I heard you you were given this award, not only because we're friends, but my gosh, man, I've always wanted an excuse to go get a, get a tour of Seaside from Andres. I mean, th- that's just incredible. The lineup you put together is amazing. If people want to attend, is there a website? Is there a place they go? Do you, do you know what that URL is? Yeah, so you'll you'll be able to share that on your website, right? I can. Yeah, we can we can pump it out with yeah, this. So, so I can't state it verbally, uh, but you can link <laughs> it to this talk. And, I will and, do that. Uh, it's 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 in the big spam email I sent you uh, yesterday. Oh, gotcha. Okay, yeah. Yeah. No, you you'll, you'll find you'll find. See, you you send these big spam emails. You say. But um, only, you send only them like once. Yeah, I was going to say you send them like once every four or five months. I probably average once a year and I pay MailChimp 65 bucks a month. But about about once a year, I send one yeah. of these. And they're always good. I mean, they're always worth your time. So, no, we're, we're good. This is a huge honor. You're too young for a Lifetime Achievement Award. But I think in the urbanism space, there's a little bit of this, right? It's like a you know, a, a recognition of just the, uh, the amount that you've added to this conversation. And I, I, you know, I, I want to congratulate you. You haven't won it, you know, they haven't given it to you yet, but I, I extend my congratulations in advance for this because, uh, obviously well-deserved and it's just great to see, you know, this place give you this recognition. So way to go, Chad. Well, I'll, I'll be, I'll have much more opportunity in my uh, acceptance speech to thank the big people. <laughs> as well as the little people. The short version that everyone who knows me knows that I'm not shy at all about sharing is that I had one great moment of genius, and that was acknowledging the genius of Andre Stwani and Elizabeth Peter Zyber. <laughs> yes. And when I, at the, at the, at the tender age of, of 30, when I was really just starting architecture school, about to start architecture school, when I discovered Seaside, Rosemary Beach, found, sorry, not Rosemary Beach. I helped design that a lot later. When I discovered Seaside and Kentlands and generally their work in the late 80s and heard Andres give his talk in 1989 at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. It was the best story I ever heard. It changed my life. It gave me a, it gave me a way to take my interest in design and turn it into a socially focused career. And honestly, still half the things that I say that I see people nodding. I'm just the parrot to Andres. <laughs> so, and they know that. Andres and Liz have always been extraordinarily generous intellectually and in, in every way. You know, I think my role in this movement, and I'm certainly not the only one, Chuck, but my role in this movement has very much been as a communicator, like to, to take these ideas that for the most part aren't mine and package them and communicate them in a way that that people can embrace them and, and spread the gospel. So uh, I've just been lucky that I found a, uh, a star to hitch my wagon to. I think you and I had a back and forth on Twitter within the last couple of months where I, I had responded to someone who said, said something not kind, maybe perhaps I, I don't, I don't really remember the full context, but I, I know what I said was basically I've made a living in my life repeating the stuff the brilliant things that Andres Duany has said. And, and you chimed in and said, uh, ditto with that, right? <laughs> yeah, you were you were fending someone off or for something Duany related, and I felt the need to jump in. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, so we let's all talk owe about a debt of gratitude. Yeah. I don't think you I don't think your your listeners really care much for this mutual admiration society. So let's talk specifically about the book. The blurb of mine that you put on the back cover you put half of it on the cover no maybe we can discuss yeah maybe we'll, you'll hear you'll hear why i approved that but maybe you'll uh maybe maybe we can discuss the second half uh at some point in the next half hour but what i wrote was i've been waiting for this book a long time it's been more than a decade since its title essay rocked me to my core reading it was my meg ryan when Harry met Sally moment. And if you know, when Harry met Sally, it's that moment in the restaurant uh-huh. where the, where, yeah. where the mom says, uh, 
I'll have what she's having. <laughs> Over the intervening years, Chuck's message has become all the more necessary and the world may finally be ready for it, which I'm very proud of. The second half is I'm not an engineer, so I can share with impunity the truth that Chuck is being prosecuted for exposing. American road engineering is not only destroying the fabric of American society and the health of its citizens, it is nothing less than institutionalized mass murder. <laughs> and yes, <laughs> um, I'm a little a little bit of hyperbole there. Don't pull any punches, uh, we, man. Yeah. Yeah. And we can talk about your own circumstance. But I think I think what this book did for me was it's admissible evidence. OK, it's admissible evidence yeah. in in the class action lawsuit that we all have to have that maybe what we need to finally get the engineering profession to stop promulgating, allowing and giving its practitioners impunity by rubber stamping all of these standards that we know for a fact are, are deadly. And the more that that message is shared uh, and made plain, I think the more actionable it becomes. Because I, I don't think unless there's some sort of legal effort and, and the fact that you're involved, or maybe we're involved, but you can discuss that, that you're involved in a legal effort yourself in the other direction, uh, perhaps is the open door that we need to turn the tables and countersue. <laughs> right. And essentially, you know, for those of you who haven't read the book, and I imagine almost everyone listening has because they're your audience, but um, what this book does is it, is it lays out very clearly that we have allowed to become the standard um, something which is, 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 which is by design much more deadly than it needs to be. And that is based on a fundamental misunderstanding that is a bastardization of science and that other countries have been successful in replacing, right? And it's amazing to me that in, you know, in Sweden and in the, in the Netherlands, vision zero means zero and they're getting there. Some, some, many cities are there. You just struck something in my mind that is not in the book, and I, I haven't really enunciated this before, but this is why I talk to you, because I, you know, you get thoughts that come to my brain. If you go to the Netherlands, right, for example, they're not a litigious society. They don't have a society structured around litigation. The way that they make change is, I, I think some of us might think more sophisticated, more cosmopolitan. I don't know. Maybe they're friendlier, debate more, but they don't have a decision-making process or a legislative process that is kind of predicated on litigation the way we do here. Our systems are largely run by attorneys. Everything tends to be very legalese. And, and the prescription that we're given, if there's a problem is, well, we have these active court you know, proceedings. You you can sue somebody. You can take them to court. They libel you. They, you know, create harm to you, whatever. I think oftentimes as advocates, because cities are given such broad immunity and broad uh, capacity to act, the idea is that, you know, this is not an open door for us. And in fact, when I've even discussed it with my board, engaging in, in, in assisting in different lawsuits and things that are going on, uh, there's been a certain hesitation. Like we, we don't really want to get into that. That's just a difficult process. But I, I do think that if you're sitting around waiting for the Netherlands to happen here through the same like deliberative process that had happened there, I think you'll be waiting a long time. I think that if we want to see some change, it actually is going to come from a class action type of lawsuit kind of thing, or some type of series of, of, of court things, because that's literally the battlefield that as Americans, we've been asked to fight in, to engage in, to move things forward in. I think that's unfortunate, but I think that's that's where we're at, right? It's the great inefficiency of our society. Like, it is a great inefficiency. I think it's the central inefficiency of our society where, where the most wealth is lost, um, although it's just transferred to lawyers. But I, I used to joke around, you know, with, 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 modern, with, with modernization and the equal rights, well, approaching equal rights in work so that now we have both sexes working and not just one, society has become wealthier and wealthier and wealthier and has found different ways to throw that money away. So if you're in Italy, for example, at least the Italy that I know from mostly from years ago, the incredibly frustrating thick bureaucracy that you find even just at a post office is how all their money is being, their extra wealth is being sucked up. In America, it's definitely the lawsuits <laughs> that are taking care of that. On that topic, I am curious, if you wish to talk about it, what is your status of the, the issues you've been facing? 
Well, we as a defensive measure filed this case in federal court to kind of stop the state from moving ahead. We knew that was a long shot and that ultimately got thrown out late last year. I got word that that is, and, and we actually haven't gone ahead and announced it to everybody yet, but I can do it here. We're going to kind of uh, walk people through what the next steps are. The federal courts defer to states and state administrator processes until they've worked all the way through. And so, we, you know, that's what the federal court said. We're now going ahead in state court. And this is an action that the state has brought against me. We've gone through the interrogatory phase where we ask questions back and forth and gather evidence. And we're getting to the point now where there's going to be a hearing soon. Unless the judge dismisses, we filed a motion to dismiss. Uh, I doubt that that will be successful because the state gets a lot of deference in this case. At any point in this conversation or in your defense, are you going to discuss the issue that you were singled out, not because you're a, an engineer who's not doing engineering, who temporarily was called an engineer while his license uh, was temporarily lapsed, but rather that um, you're someone who's saying that the emperor has no clothes and the emperor doesn't like it. Is that part of your defense? Yes. Yes. So the state has asked for there to be no hearing. They said there's no evidence that needs to be entered in in a hearing. And our legal team has said, no, we want to get people in there, do depositions. We want to cross-examine them. They have said in hearings with me, I was only invited to one meeting of the board, that their violation committee is closed. So it's not open to the public. You can't hear their deliberations. I was invited to attend one of them as a, someone to ask questions and answer of. And as you read in the book, some of the things they said were very disturbing in terms of regulating my speech, regulating the things that I would go out and, and just talk about not as a paid consultant, not as someone writing up plans or things that you need to sign. And so, yeah, there's a lot of disturbing things. And that is part of our reasoning for you know demanding the hearing, which I have a right to do. I have a right to demand a hearing. Do you think it's ultimately better for the movement for you to lose your license? <sighs> it's a good question. <laughs> and then you can say they, they hated this stuff so much. They're so scared the truth. The reality is my license is really not under serious threat. Um, the thing that is under serious threat is that they have a finding in their administrative order that I committed fraud. I misled the public. I was dishonest. So when my license expired, I don't practice engineering. One of the interrogatories asked them, do you have any evidence that Marone practiced engineering or did anything that required a license? And their answer was no. And so the thing is, is like, I've discovered it after the fact, I paid the late fee and uh, that was it. But because I hadn't removed my bio line that said I, I'm an engineer, they're bringing this against me. They're not interested in fining me. Like they have the minimum fine possible. I said I would pay the fine. I said I would even sign an order saying that this had occurred and I was technically in violation of state law. What they are insisting on is that I sign an order or now a judge stipulates that I was dishonest, I committed fraud, and I misrepresented myself to the public. It's interesting because just in the intervening time since this became public and has become part of the public conversation, twice I have been brought up to me, once on Twitter and once at a meeting where I was presenting, where someone said, how can we listen to you? The state licensing board of Minnesota has said, you're dishonest, you've a fraud and you've misled the public. How can we listen to you? And this is the exact thing that they're using this system to do is to basically defame me on what is a non-applicable, if we want to call it a technicality, our core argument is that you can't regulate the things I'm speaking. You can only regulate me when I'm doing engineering. It's very frustrating. Right. So they're using one as a as a um, as a proxy. Yeah. It's a proxy for the other. This is deeply embarrassing to me because I'm going to say this in like it was just sloppy of me to not have renewed my license on time. I took the continuing ed, I did all the stuff you had to do. I'm a busy guy. I'm not really great at paperwork. I've got people who do paperwork for me cuz I'm not good at it. I forgot to renew my license on time. It's deeply embarrassing to me. You're talking to a guy who just this year and every two years 
fulfills his AICP continuing education credits on December 31st. <laughs> I'm that same guy. I would be baking cookies, doing the online course every December. Yes, that's me. And your cookie, your cookies were great this year, Chuck. Thank you, friend. Um, <laughs> but it's embarrassing to me, right? Let's move on. Well, I mean, I think it's important to to talk about it because I think you're the way that they've chosen to prosecute and persecute you, I think is evidence of a raw spot that they're very afraid of exposing. And that to me suggests a vulnerability that we should take advantage of. <laughs> so I could not agree more. Yeah. It's fascinating to me in your book that you start with this example of, of Sagrario Gonzalez in um, Springfield, Mass. And that so many of your examples, even when you start to talk about transit, are in Springfield, and you've chosen this town, which you happen to be visiting when this deadly crash occurred. This becomes a, a central location in your book. And yet, Massachusetts is the 50th most dangerous state to be a driver or pedestrian in, roughly. And I was curious about that, but it makes perfect sense to me because it's like, you know, if this can happen here, it can happen everywhere, right? And that's why you chose it. I recently had the opportunity to speak to the a plenary of Massachusetts DOT, MassDOT. My initial slide, my first two slides, bold print in the, in the PowerPoint was, you are the best and then of the worst. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I, I, spent, I spent, I was supposed to be talking about multimodal, you know, transport, but I was essentially saying, you know, these are all the things that DOTs need to hear. Uh, I didn't quote your book at length because I didn't yet have enough facility with it, but I'm, I'm getting there. But you tell the story. I don't think we need to hash it out very much, but about this condition where, which you find in so many cases of both in urban environments, but even in suburban environments where more and more Americans have to live because they don't have a choice, where it's it's a quarter mile or a half a mile or a mile between crosswalks. The bus lets you out on one side of the street and you got to get to the other or the public, in your case, the public library parking lot is across the street from the doors at the center of the beautiful traditional public library and people cross it. And someone was just again, right? Just a, yes. a month ago yes. or so. It happened in November. Another person was killed in the exact after same spot. After you wrote the book. After I wrote so the book. You, so after you wrote the book, so, you, so there's all this evidence telling them they should have changed something. And, you know, poor Springfield, I don't want to see them lose their budget, but, but, it's acting on warnings not heated like that that might allow the people responsible to to be punished in a way that causes them to change the way they they do their job. A lot of things about that location in Springfield stick in my mind, and I know this is no accident. But uh, one example that you cite just so brilliantly is the fact that had Destiny and her daughter and niece walked to the corner and waited to cross at the intersection, they would have been standing uh, protected from traffic by a signal pole. And that signal pole, which protected them from someone who might have lost control and gone off the street, has shear bolts so that if someone does hit it, it will immediately break away, therefore not damage the vehicle. <laughs> and the idea that, that as a matter of course, we design an urban environment to be forgiving, right? That's the most important word, to be forgiving to the worst driving, even though uh, there's all these small and crunchy objects around known as people, uh, is just is just mind boggling to me. And, and, and it just shows how uh, confused things have gotten. I, uh, you don't need to respond, but interrupt at any time. You started this by saying this is kind of like exhibit A in a court case. And there were parts of this that I felt that way, right? Like I've done expert witness testimony. Like I've, I've talked to lawyers about this. And it's a very stunning thing for a jury to look at or a judge to look at evidence that you've gone to such great lengths to protect the driver in this spot. You, you've spent extra money. You've gone to extra lengths to protect the driver. And you know there's a person standing right there. I refuse to call them pedestrians. There's a human being standing feet away. And the definition of gross negligence is a conscious indifference to others. And to me, the idea that we could prove gross negligence on the entire engineering profession is just a de facto truth because they know that there's a human being standing right there, yet they have designed something absolutely fatal to that person with a complete indifference to their, their safety. For it to be negligence, you don't have to say that it was malice, you know, afterthought. It was uh, just not caring, right? That's exactly right. If I can try to sum up some of the major themes of the book, 
which that example, which we keep revisiting, uh, really brings home. One of the reasons I like it so much is it it addresses very straight, very straight on the way that I like to frame these discussions, which is a profession, and we'll call it traffic engineering, which is making a series, really two principal mistakes based on the same single mistake, which is an unwillingness to acknowledge that environment influences behavior. Uh, this is a, a battle that I fought many times early on in the new urbanist movement with architects who look at the front porches and picket fences of Seaside and poo-poo them and say, uh, we must excise from our thought process the concept that, that uh, in, environment influences behavior, which is you know, just patently false in terms of design, because if you make a room with no doors, you can't get into it, right? So there's, there's evidence immediately. But the way that I like to describe it is that it pertains to traffic and it pertains to safety. And it's the exact same mistake, but it plays out in different ways. So in terms of traffic, there's a, a unwillingness to acknowledge that when you widen a street to accept more congestion, that more congestion will come. And an ignorance in that case that because the principal constraint to driving is congestion, it is only congestion that limits the number of trips on any given road, right? So that, that's the first thing that, that the whole induced demand discussion, which everyone understands intellectually, yet very few cities, if any, actually act like they understand it, right? And then secondly, more importantly in your book, I would say, but both are covered well, the, the safety conversation, which is that um, this whole risk homeostasis, you have a different word that's easier than risk homeostasis. The forgiving design concept. Yeah. Yeah. You have another word for homeostasis. I forget what it is, but basically the idea that people adjust their behavior. Oh, to risk compensation. It. Yeah. Risk compensation. Yeah. I got it from Malcolm Gladwell, who called it risk homeostasis many years ago. Uh, I mean, that was a technical term that he embraced. But the idea that, that we all enjoy a certain amount of risk and we actually adjust our behavior to experience that risk. And anything you do that removes risk or friction is going to have a corresponding influence on our behavior in a way that makes the environment more dangerous. And the failure to understand that, rather than having just treacherous economic consequences, uh, has treacherous uh, fatality consequences. So let me build that exhibit a little bit, though. What you're saying is, is absolutely true. There are these like blind spots where engineers don't take into account the human behavior that's going to result from their work. But I, I think that that has to be juxtaposed with the instances where they do. 85th percentile speed is one where, where they recognize that regardless of what we post as a speed out there, people are going to drive the speed they feel comfortable. And so the way you make that environment, quote unquote, safe is to have a speed limit that reflects the, the speed that people are driving. And so you'll go out and do a speed study and you'll actually raise the speed limit if people are driving faster, because the problem on an open road is that the differential in speed, if someone, if the speed limit's set at 45, but people are traveling 65, there'll be someone who travels 45 and, and that differential in speed causes the problem. Engineers are very capable and have shown that they are willing to examine the human condition and recognize that humans you know, operate in certain ways, but they only do it when it speeds up traffic. They won't do it when it slows down traffic. And, and that's, the, that, that's the exhibit A, right? So you have a chart, and, and actually I don't have this chart, Chuck, and if you'll make a note, I want you to send me this chart. Okay. You have a chart, which is in all, which is in all the engineering books, which I'm always referring to, but I've never actually seen, which is nine foot lane, 25 miles an hour, 10 foot lane, 35 miles an hour, 11 foot lane, 45 miles an hour, 12 foot lane, 70 miles an hour, whatever it is, we all know. But what that chart tells us is that for that <laughs> to allow people to go safely a certain speed, you want to provide them with these lanes of ever increasing width. What they're not willing to do is to admit that when you narrow the lane, people will drive slower. <laughs> it's, it's preposterous. It's entirely unidirectional. And it's just funny, like I was working in Utah with a state DOT engineer and I was advocating for tighter curb radii at a corner. And I said, if you tighten the curb radii, people will go around the corner slower. And he said, that's not true. People will go the speed they want to go. And I pulled up, I, I had it. I pulled up a drawing that showed two curb radii and two speeds attached to them. And he's like, oh, <laughs> right. Because they, they look at it the other way. 
this is really chapter one. And I, I, I feel like chapter one sets the, you know, sets the stage for the entire thing where engineers start with a design speed. That design speed influences all the other decisions in the design process. You and I would start with the condition of the street and the environment, and then back out of that, the speed that would be you know safe and appropriate and, and the best speed for that. When you start with speed as the given, you can say absurd things like, well, they'll just drive the speed they feel appro- you know, is appropriate because you've already assumed a high speed. It's, it's, it's inherent in your design. I did a podcast episode, if you're listening to this, like a few episodes ago, where I interpreted, there was a meeting with an engineer and it was members of the public and members of the city council saying things to the engineer and then the engineer responding. And and I realized that they were talking completely different languages. And so I spent a whole podcast episode interpreting one to the other. This is what the engineer is saying to you, the public you know, it's not what you're hearing. This is what he's actually saying. Engineer, this is what you're hearing, but here's what they actually mean in your language. There's this huge disconnect. And it, a lot of it goes back to where, what those starting assumptions are, which in the engineering profession are just whack. Let's keep moving. Your your classic distinction, which I love um, between a road and a street and a strode when you try to put them together, roads and streets are the yin and yang for city building. But then a new analogy, which I just love, and you know, I try to equal you and um, Donald Shoup and others in finding the perfect analogy for every situation, but you finally did it here. A strode is a street road hybrid. It is the futon of the transportation system. A futon is an uncomfortable couch that converts into an uncomfortable bed, <laughs> something that performs two functions but does neither well. A strode tries to be both a street and a road, providing both mobility and access, yet fails miserably at both. You've been talking about this for a long time. I was curious if you were aware, and I presume you are, that there's a long history of this distinction under different names and that Benton McKay back in the 30s talked about the townless highway in the early 30s. And then Lewis Mumford uh, matched that with the highwayless town also in the 30s. And then we at DPZ in the 80s were drawing diagrams of the townless highway and the highwayless town. But that's such an important concept that another, another of your kind of models that you create, intellectual models that allow the, the veils to, to, to drop from the eyes and you say, oh yeah, we're just doing this wrong almost everywhere and we need to stop. The idea that highways become strips, right? And the alternative, Tom Lowe, a longtime DPZer, did a, a series of drawings and on the top he had the, the townless highway and the highwayless town. And at the bottom he had the town gutted and the strip. Right. So allowing highways to bust through towns, big mistake, allowing towns to accrete around what should be a fast path from point A to point B. Um, super important. I really appreciate that. Can I give you a, a touch of my imposter syndrome? Sure. So I told you once before, and I'll, I'll say this here and, you know, people can take it for what it was. But when I read Suburban Nation for the first time, there were multiple times in that book where I got tears in my eyes. And it was not that like your prose was, you know, Steinbeck weepy or anything, you know, like it didn't struck me, but I was searching for answers. I, I came up in this engineering profession, right? And I was searching for answers and, and the things that I had in my, I grew up on a farm in a small town. I'm a, I was going to be a drummer. Like that's what I wanted to do. I went to engineering school because I wanted to marry this woman. And, and, and I was trying to like, you know, be an earnest person in the world. But I had all these things I was trying to work out and I didn't have the language for them. And I feel a lot like what Strong Towns has been. It is me uncovering things that other people already know because they started from a different place. But when I have to uncover them, I have to like, because I'm coming from a different place, I wind up explaining them slightly differently than other people that makes it to a select group of people like more accessible in a way. So I always feel like an imposter coming into, I mean, like CNU, I remember like the first few times I went, I just sat in the corner and didn't say anything because I'm like, everybody here knows everything I'm trying to figure out. I'm just sitting here on the side, like going, holy crap. Like that's what I've been trying to figure out for the last eight years. And he just said it in two sentences. So well, you found a way though, to bring that to a larger audience. So that's super important. Um, yeah. 
another wonderful topic, and this is one that that I think uh, I'm very thankful it's in your book and prominent in your book because I bring it up everywhere, and I bring it up a based on limited evidence, uh, significant evidence that I'm confident in, but limited evidence, but also it is news to everyone when I bring it up, which is the stupidity of traffic signals. A lot of it is just clear thinking, as Jarrett Walker would say, think about something clearly and you'll get some good answers. But the evidence is very clear. You know, when they converted uh, 400 signals to always stops in Philadelphia many years ago, and they got data on 200 of them and found that severe pedestrian injury accidents, crashes, excuse me, dropped by like 69%. And then it's, of course, completely logical when you think about it. And you realize, as you say in the book, that you know, a green light to the driver is basically an invitation to speed through an intersection that they've been frustrated waiting at, um, that the whole purpose of signals is to create platoons of vehicles that can go quickly as opposed to actually moving more traffic more efficiently if everyone is just politely going slowly. And then, of course, what happens socially at a signal where, uh, sorry, at a stop sign versus a signal where there's eye contact. I realized the other day and made a joke that people seem to like that uh, for a lot of Americans right now, the only time in their daily lives when they're actually forced to interact in person with strangers is at the Uh, always stop on their way to work if they have one, right? right? And then, Chuck, I had this experience in Albuquerque where I put in a bunch of um, like 11 always stops and people complained because, of course, it was a change. So they didn't like that. And they took out some of them. And then people complained louder because they realized that it was taking them much longer to get through town when the signals were back. And they, they came to the realization, wow, stopping at every intersection and driving slowly through the downtown is getting me through the downtown faster than waiting and then speeding between signals. And they went back to my plan happily. Well, happy for me. I'm not sure if everyone there was happy. But uh, you, you lay out very clearly in the book and you explain why that a downtown full of lots of always stops is actually a much more efficient and better traffic processing downtown than one that has uh, signals. And I've been removing signals by the handful in every plan I've done uh, since I discovered their safety. But th- this, this uh, aspect of efficiency is, is, is a lesson that more people need to understand. It is amazing that within the engineering profession, we just assume that traffic signals increase efficiency. And it's one of those things that I'm a weird person. I've sat for long stretches of time at signalized intersections and just watched what's gone on. And because to me, it it never made any sense. I try to walk people through that book from getting them to hate traffic signals to hopefully at the end of that chapter, actually considering shared space environments, which would be to me, even a space a step beyond the always stop that you're with describing. No, like naked streets with no, no, like in, in Holland and in, in the Netherlands, they're removing stop signs. They're going to the next step, which is this, every intersection is a negotiation where you have to figure it out and you know, to, you know, to enter it that way. Yes. And, and yeah. I realized that that's like the jujitsu level of urban design and we got to, <laughs> you know, get the, uh, the base level. If you said, Chuck, you can have one outcome from this book that will be universal across North America. I would be tempted to say slow speeds are better, but I I might just for my own sanity say, I want everyone in North America to hate traffic signals as much as I do. Because they yeah, are the, the worst. When you put one in, it's a half million dollars to basically rob everyone of their time and make the street way less safe for everybody. Why is that a positive thing? Down the road, you've got to you got to upgrade it for another bunch of money. So another really fun thing, because we're running out of time. There's two more things I want to talk about. One, yeah, go. <laughs> you're you're just so good at like um, making me realize the conventional wisdom about some things may be wrong. I bought into this idea that the reason why traffic deaths went up during the pandemic from basically 1.06 per 100 million to 1.42 per 100 million. I bought into this uh, mythology that everyone was out there like, COVID, COVID, it's speeding. (laughs) Look out, COVID's coming. It's speeding around recklessly because that was the narrative that people were driving like crazy when in fact, it was a very simple thing that there was less congestion. So of course, speeds are higher and more people are, are dying, right? And that's, I was tricked and I'm not happy about it. Jeff, I think the tragedy of that one, too, is that we live in a world of narratives, right? 
I think politically, you and I have have chatted at times where we've not been completely aligned at the national level. I, I think, you know, at the local level, we probably align really, really well. Because we live in this world of narratives, I, I think we're always primed to be suspect of like the other. And I feel like one of the deep injustices that traffic safety officials have done in, in this pandemic because all the stuff in the book, and I've written subsequently on this too, quotes traffic safety officials as, you know, the pandemic hit. And now there's a bunch of people who won't get vaxxed and won't wear masks and are driving without seatbelts and driving drunk. And they lump them all into one group of reckless individuals. And that makes for like a compelling cocktail narrative to, to, to feel good about yourself. But it does a huge injustice to, to, to traffic safety and to actually getting at what is causing people to die on our streets. Yeah. Well, you actually you've pointed me towards our last, my last topic, which is your brilliant uh, last or set or near the end uh, conversation about uh, eliminating the routine traffic stop, which I think is the natural conclusion to reach as you learn more and more about uh, how that goes. I presume from this chapter, have you read Policing the Open Road by Sarah Seo? Have you read no, that I haven't. Book? No, I haven't. I haven't even heard of that book. I, I, You're, yeah, it's called Policing the Open Road by Sarah Seo and uh, SEO. And uh, she actually wanted to be one of the speakers at Seaside, but couldn't make it. But I invited her to come. Fortunately, the chapter reads as if it is informed by that book. And basically the, the story that she tells, which is absolutely fascinating, which we don't need to get into in great depth, but about how American police departments were cash strapped. We're all just struggling to survive until uh, the traffic stop started, right? The traffic stop became a thing and that financed uh, police departments and grew and grew and grew. But then a very important series of court cases happened, one in particular involving a bootlegger, where it was determined that your, your right to keep your private property private, your right to have no one search your house without a warrant, to have no one open your briefcase without a warrant, distinctly was removed from the motor vehicle. And that is because the motor vehicle, I guess, is a potential weapon, right? And that it's, it's a danger and it can hurt people. And therefore, as, at a certain point, a number of court cases, probably in the 20s and 30s, outline that police can randomly, at their own discretion, as you say, choose what vehicles to search and essentially be the, the judge, jury, and executioner, rather than just the policeman, when it comes to, um, to dealing with anything that happens in a car. So, and here's where I think I've made a breakthrough. <laughs> <laughs> Combine that circumstance then where police have absolute uh, authority, essentially, to uh, profile, to harass, to do their jobs as they see fit with a circumstance that by design causes all of us to break the law all day, every day, every time we're behind the wheel. Because the fact is, every time I'm on a highway, I'm breaking the law by at least eight miles an hour. Every time I'm driving around my neighborhood, I'm breaking the law by probably five miles an hour. I mean, I, I try to be cautious, but the street's designed for 40 and I'm going to go 35, even though it's marked 30, right? So you have this circumstance of, of uncontrolled policing simultaneously with the circumstance of constant law breaking that you just need to do to survive, you know, in the system where everyone else is going that fast. And you have the least free most policed state in the free world. And everyone talks about driving and freedom, like somehow driving and having a car and being able to take it everywhere is what gives us freedom. Uh, I, I believe that America is one of the least free, from a libertarian standpoint, Chuck, one of the least free countries in the world because of this established duality of free policing and, and uh, illegal driving. Yeah. Thank you for no, listening. It, it, it has enabled a police state aspect to all of our lives because we're all we're all deviants in, in a strict police enforcement sense when it comes to motor vehicles. And, and I'm not anti-police. You know, I sound like a, a, a you know, tinfoil hat wearer. I'm actually you know, I'm 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 not anti-policing and any of that. But but I, I think we've set up a system that's incredibly unfree. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. Let, let me give the small town conservative pro-police uh, bent on this, um, because I, I think that maybe we give that voice, too, as a counter, uh, because we both agree on what you just said. There were so many meetings where I was in as an, as an engineer 
where we would talk about street design and 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 speeding issues and problems uh, related to things we had built as engineers or were part of our transportation system where people were getting killed driving too fast being reckless the response was from the engineers that is an enforcement issue that is something that police officers will take care of don't look at me. It's not my design. It's not something I should take care of. It's something that that's why we have police. And the reality is, is that nothing that the police do informs the design process. So police can sit out on a dangerous curve and pull people over all day. And, and literally there are places where you can sit out there and every time you can cycle a police officer in there, you can pull over everybody who's coming through because everybody is speeding. Everybody. So, so, and, and and that information never feeds back to the engineer. Like if the if the goal here is to have people drive 30 and they're driving, everyone's driving over 30, you've done something wrong. That feedback is never given to the engineer. It's all one way. Chuck, even if it were given to the engineer, the fundamental concept that you would design a road to limit speed is something that absent the occasional residential neighborhood chicane or speed bump has not been allowed to infuse the traffic engineering profession in the US. That's right. And so what you have is you have to me like the worst kind of negative feedback loop where you know you and I can can cheer the the mindset or the inspiration for vision zero and say yet yeah, no one should be killed on our roadways like we agree with that. But then when you dig into Vision Zero and you find out that two-thirds of the dollars goes to police enforcement and another you know, large chunk of it goes to improving intersections, you know, in air quotes, to make traffic flow more smoothly, and the rest of it goes to you know, public information campaigns where we're trying to shame pedestrians for walking without reflective clothing on, <laughs> you, you just like, this is all part of this. The police part of this is part of a really bad feedback loop that needs to go away. And we need to end the routine traffic stop. I mean, that's my point is that this is not something that is helping traffic safety at all. And it's also having these other bad effects. I think your solution works, which is that, you know, we can talk about our disagreements about speed cameras some other time, but if if the policeman has a speed camera uh, or a uh, camera in their vehicle and they can document it and send a ticket without bothering the person in the car, I think civil rights and everything else is is not a problem, and freedom is not a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and you're just much more likely to uh, see the police spending their time uh, being more effective, helping the community than um, uh, profiling folks. So we are at an end of this. I want to just make one point. Uh, you didn't beat me up at all in transit, and Jared Walker. He wants to, him and I are going to chat sometime because he's like, I, I loved every chapter of the book, but your chapter on transit. And he's like the transit expert. He wants to talk a little bit. I'm, I'm hoping to get him to come on air to talk about some of those things. I kind of feel like I'm out of alignment a little bit with some of the large city transit advocates, but you, you, didn't, you didn't beat me up on that. Maybe we'll have to get back together well, again. Your, your, your transit chapter actually congratulates and talks about the good work that Jarrett does. So uh, he must oh, have- it does. Th- he must have disliked the other parts. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I disagreed with only a few things in the book. One thing I disagree with to get more into my specialty, because I'm not a transit specialist, but let's not discuss it. I just want to say, uh, you say that density is a symptom of economic success rather than a cause. And I can prove that you're wrong. <laughs> I say it's a byproduct. Yeah. That was the only thing in the book that, um, that was the only thing in the book that I, outright disagree with. I thought your transit argument was fairly well in line with his, and I know you got a lot of it from him. So I would look forward to tuning in and I have to go now as do you, but I I look forward to tuning in uh, to that conversation. Hey, thank you. Thank you, friend. I'll see you in Seaside. I'll see you in Oklahoma City. We'll put all those uh, things in the the show notes so you can get connected to them if you're listening or watching. And uh, everybody out there, thank you. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care, Jeff. Bye.
know that America's one big pothole right now? Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Nathan City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.